Uh, if you have a device, we're in the ESV version of the Bible. Acts 6. So if you could have been here uh, six and a half years ago, the first time we ever, ever gathered as substance, um, man, it was a sight to behold. Somebody just laughed when I said that. Um, here's what we had. We had one pump pot. We had 12 donuts, one guitar, uh, one music stand, no microphones, no sound system, and uh, no, no pulpit. Um, and again, that was six and a half years ago. In the world of church planning, you could probably file this under like what not to do, you know, on your first Sunday gathering together. We, we didn't have much in the way of really anything. We really had no structure when we started um, other than just gathering on Sundays and then we would gather on Wednesday night under, with our community group. Um, so not a lot of structure. But at the same time, we, we did have some posture um, you could see our posture, and our posture was that we had hospitality towards one another. We opened our arms to each other. We opened our arms to the community. We had hope as well. We had a hope in the gospel. So we led out with this posture of having our arms open wide to one another in the community, embracing this hope that we have in the gospel. Um, gosh, and I remember just speaking of, I just remembered this. Um, I remember the first Thanksgiving Eve of the Eve service that we had. Um, does anybody remember, was anybody there? It's unbelievable, like two of you were, were there, probably the, the Watsons or the, or the Cooks, but I remember that first Thanksgiving Eve of the Eve service, and we had, um, man, we had so much pie. We had so much pie. We were shocked because I think we had 30 people, and it was the most people we had ever had um, up to that point. Um, but more than that, um, we just had this spirit of gratefulness and thanksgiving, and it sort of permeated the room. And somehow, um, despite our best efforts, especially given the way that I just kind of laid it out to you what was going on, uh, we, we, we ended up growing, um, as you can see. And with this growth um, has come what we would call growing needs. With this growth has come sort of the need for, for structure, which, by the way, is a good thing. It's a good thing to be a church that is growing and also growing in its neediness. It means that God is continuing to gather more people to a place where they'll discover how much they actually need him. So there's that aspect of it, but there are still other needs that the church has. There are physical needs, right? There's administrative needs that we need to steward well we would say, for the sake of the gospel. In other words, how we love and care for the people of God, it reflects our love and care for the gospel of God. We don't get to separate those two things. So we need increased structure while not ignoring our posture. Because a growing church with growing needs, it must remain growing in the gospel. And so if we want to just do a little bit of a recap in Acts up to this point, this is what we've seen so far. We've seen the church um, growing and exploding in growth, but they've also experienced some growing pains. So yes, thousands have come to know Jesus. Disciples are being multiplied, but at the same time, Peter and John, um, man, they've been arrested a couple of times. They've been told to stop preaching the gospel. And if this wasn't concerning enough, um, a husband and wife couple, uh, Ananias and Sapphira, are struck dead because they lie to the church about some property 
that they had sold. So the disciples, again, they ended up being arrested for the second time. And this time, they're not only arrested, but um, and the religious leaders are coming down heavy and hard on them. And so these brothers are beaten and they're threatened again. So where are we at then today in the midst of all this drama? Well, today we're going to see how the church has grown to the place where they need to restructure due to some complaints that people's physical needs were being neglected. Now, the gospel continues to spread in the church. God continues to bless the work and the faithfulness of the apostles and the disciples, these men and women of God who are being faithful uh, to God and how they're proclaiming the gospel. But some physical needs, some growing needs are starting to rise up in the church. And this is where we find ourselves in Acts 6. So let's pick up in verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 7, and that's going to be where we're at for this morning. It says this, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And in verse 5 it says, And when they said, and what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and uh, Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. And then it finishes up by saying, The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So what we get here just from reading these first seven verses in chapter six is that the church has needs. The church also had some complaints. And let's just thank God that this is the last time in recorded history we ever hear about someone in the church complaining about something right here in Acts six, right? So who are these Hellenists? That's the first question that maybe comes to mind as you read this with me. Who are these Hellenists and why are they complaining? Well, before we get into that, let's not miss something that happens before he mentions that. Let's not miss how Luke describes what is happening in the church, which is that, what does it say there in verse 1? It says that disciples are increasing. That has to matter to us as we've been reading through Acts, right? Um, because despite the adversity, the church has experienced God's mercy through multiplication. What did we talk about last week? The fact that God can't be stopped, God's going to do what God is going to do. He began this movement. He's going to see it through. And that's the story of the church throughout history. Whenever the church comes under fire, it seems to grow like wildfire. It's just a pattern that we see in the church. In fact, it's actually when things get kind of cozy and complacent that the church needs to be concerned about what might be happening to their posture and maybe they're slipping out from under making the gospel the most important thing, making the gospel to be that item of first importance in the church, right? So who were these Hellenists? Well, they were simply Greek-speaking Jews. So they were Greek-speaking Jews who had embraced the Christian faith and became part of the church body. But the sad reality is that given everything God was doing, it says that murmuring 
arose. There were complaints. And we got to read this as a bit of a cautionary tale for us because even if their complaints were fair, and it looks like they probably were, approaching them in this manner is how seeds of disunity get planted in a church, right? Because the church has an enemy. A church has an enemy that wants to disrupt the unity of the church from the inside out. I mean, let's not forget Ananias and Sapphira because I'll tell you what, these brothers and sisters, we're not forgetting Ananias and Sapphira. But what we see is that a church that chooses, that sort of adopts the, the, uh, the, uh, the posture of grumbling over a church that is grateful is a church that has begun to drift from the gospel. And so what we're experiencing here in this first verse is just a, maybe just a tad of drift, right? A, a tad of drift from the gospel because we want to make sure that we keep very, very securely in place matters of first importance for us. I think last Sunday was a really good example of what matters of first importance are to the church. We baptized four brothers and sisters, right? So what did we see there? Well, we saw the work of Christ laid out and played out in the hearts and lives of these brothers and sisters that were baptized. They made a public proclamation to all of you. What they said was, hey, I have been redeemed from death to life. I want you to know that because I'm one of you now. I'm walking with you. Why? Well, because God walks with me. So those are the matters of first importance. That's what we want to keep vividly, kind of as a snapshot in front of our eyes all of the time. So we want to ask the question. We want to say, man, are we a grumbling or a grateful church? I've been, maybe you have too, I've been in grumbling churches and it's not a good look. It's not a good look on churches at all. So what we see here in the beginning is that certainly the church has Needs, and that's not a bad thing because it signifies that God is growing the church. The church has needs. The church has needs that should be supplied by the church. And that's what we see here in verses two through six. And what we see is that the disciples take appropriate action, they don't ignore it, right? They're hearing the complaints. They're saying, okay, what are we missing here? And what do we need to do to meet those needs? Again, the complaints didn't necessarily mean that there weren't legitimate needs being neglected. But it also meant that the physical needs of the church can never be elevated above the spiritual needs of the church. In fact, both are important And we would say that neither of them can be neglected. In other words, listen, if one prevents the other from happening, in a really large sense, it it almost becomes a denial of faith. This is what James told us. James, the brother of Jesus, this is what he said about it in in the book he wrote, James chapter 2, verse 14. He said this, listen. He said, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? In other words, what if somebody is just saying, yeah, I believe in God. Yeah, I have faith in God. I'm a Christian. Like, I'm, I'm wearing my substance shirt. Like, it's cool. And then he says this. He says, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, James says, if it doesn't have works, it's dead. 
So this helps us understand what's going on here in terms of the importance the disciples saw when they, when they noticed that needs were being neglected when they heard the complaints. It's a dead and an inauthentic faith that ignores the needs of the people. It's a faithlessness, in other words. So the apostle, the apostles charge the disciples. They say, hey, here's an idea. And they charge them to appoint men to serve the physical and the administrative needs of the church. And not just any men, by the way, but men of good repute. It says, full of the spirit and of wisdom. So what this once again shows us is that character is the first qualification in church ministry. Character. It doesn't really talk about their skills very much, does it? Like when it lays out those names that I just completely butchered, right? It didn't really like list out what they were all good at and what their talents were. It just said appoint men who fit the qualifications, good repute, full of the spirit, and of wisdom. By the way, this is applied to elders as well as deacons. Now, this is where we understand deacon ministry. Although they don't use the word uh, deacon here, we understand that this is one of the first places where the church calls deacons. And we get qualifications for deacons. In other words, men and women that need to have the kind of character that need to lead in caring for the physical and the administrative needs of the church. Turn with me to 1 Timothy. You want to make a hard right... You want to go all the way down to, well, 1 Timothy. Um, 1 Timothy 3 comes right after Thessalonians. And I'm just going to read the, the character qualities that need to exist because we have deacons at substance. We have deaconesses at substance, which would be female deacons, in case you weren't catching the vibe there with that word. And this is what Paul lays out to Timothy in terms of the qualifications of deacons. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 8, he says, Deacons must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. And their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons, they gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So this wasn't some uh, ministry that we see here from the disciples where they say, hey, we got some needs, this is annoying, these complaints are insane, and what we want to do is just find somebody to take care of it so that we can be off on our merry way. No, they said we need to call men of high character. We also see other places in the Bible that call women as deacons, which is why we have both uh, men and women deacons, uh, leaders of our church in that capacity. So the church has physical needs that should be supplied by the church, by men and women who exhibit that kind of character. We also want them to have some skills, too, in the areas that they serve. But the first call is what kind of character do they have? And so we go to 1 Timothy 3 to make sure that our deacons and our deaconesses have this kind of character. So the church has needs The church needs to supply the needs that it has from within the church body so that its spiritual needs are not being neglected. So by having a structure like what uh, the early church was setting up here, what the apostles were setting up, is it allows then the gospel to remain primary. 
right? So the danger is that physical needs will obstruct. They'll become all-encompassing. They'll obstruct our primary need to be what? Well, to be a praying and a preaching church. Al Mohler, this is what he writes about it. He says, only as a church faithfully preaches and teaches scripture and then pleads for God's spirit to bless their efforts can they expect to see true conversions and true growth in godliness among God's people. So what the disciples were concerned about was, number one, they were concerned about the physical needs of the people, but they didn't want that to tear away at what they felt they were called to, which is to be uh, men who were in prayer and studying the word and preaching the gospel. That needed to be what undergirded everything else, right? It's kind of a like, it's a little bit like a, a marriage, right? You have kids, you have jobs, you have household to take care of, you have bills that need to be paid. If but if you neglect care and if you neglect intimacy at the heart level, your relationship begins to resemble um, something that looks more like maybe a small business than it does what it was originally meant to be, which is a spiritual union. And so we can kind of take a picture from that and apply it to the church. If it's all physical structure, if there's no heart posture underneath it and behind it, then structure becomes the posture of the heart. And so the disciples were concerned about the needs of the people, but they wanted to make sure that the needs of the people didn't become their primary focus because prayer and the preaching of the word needed to just stay right there as a matter of first importance. So this brings us to questions now for us as substance, which is what our posture should be as we commit to serving the needs of the church. In other words, let me just frame it to you like this, really simple. How should we serve? What is the posture of our hearts to be as we are a people that need to be serving one another, serving the needs of our church? Well, four things. The first one is this. We need to serve without grumbling. Serve without grumbling. In 1 Peter 4, verse 9, Peter says, hey, show hospitality to one another. And then he says, do it without grumbling. Why does he say that? Why does it matter? Isn't it just enough to do the job? Isn't it enough to do the job? Because I'll tell you, man, when my mom and dad asked me to do something, I'd start kicking stuff. They didn't care at all. They just wanted the job done. That was irony, guys. I mean, they, like, they didn't want me to kick stuff. They were like, no, 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 no. We want your attitude to be right as you're doing the thing that we are asking you to do. What mattered more to them at the end of the day was not getting the task done, but it was the posture of our heart in getting the task done. Not being a grumbler, but being glad for all the things they provided for me and how I can be of some help in the household. So Peter says, show hospitality to one another. Do it without grumbling. It's weird that he even has to say that because none of us grumbles. I mean, I almost feel like this is redundancy. Like, I never complain about any... I wrote a book on complaining four years ago. I don't complain. I've never talked to any of you that complain. So let's just skip that first one. Um, number two. Number one. Serve with gladness. We read it at the beginning. It was our call to worship this morning, Psalm 100. It said, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness, it says, right? So it's kind of the opposite of grumbling is serving the Lord with gladness. Why should you have a glad heart? Well, it's 
presupposed that people who have been saved by the gospel have a lot to be thankful for. The posture of your heart is changed now, right? That slavery that you used to be tied into has been released. You've been relieved of that. You're a free person now. Christ on the cross saved you from slavery is what he did to sin. There is a gladness in that. I'm always glad about things that provide something in my heart that produces joy and happiness. And that's what the gospel does for us. It allows us to serve then with gladness. Three, serve through love. So we want to serve without grumbling, serve with gladness. Three, we want to serve through love. Galatians 5.13 says, For you are called to freedom, brothers. That's what Paul says. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. In other words, freedom doesn't mean you just, I'm saved now, I get to just go live however I want. That's not what it means at all. But he says this, he says, don't use it as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. So this freedom that you experience in Christ, because of his love poured into your hearts, you now, through that same love, you get to serve one another. And then fourth, serve like Jesus. That's the thing that needs to undergird all of our serving. Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. So there needs to be a particular posture in us that is being cultivated, where we serve without grumbling, we serve with gladness, we serve through love, and we ultimately, all of those things, is to lead us to serving like Jesus. What then, who then should we guard against serving like? If that's what we need to be serving like, what do we need to guard against? What are some of the things, what would be something that we have the tendency to fall into in our serving? So it's like, well, man, I'm serving. Well, again, yeah, but we're not just talking about a task being fulfilled here. We're talking about having the kind of spirit that allows you to serve like Jesus through love with gladness as a non-complainer. So then what do we guard against? Well, I think a great story is in Luke 10, verse 40. It's the story of Martha and Mary. Remember the story of Martha and Mary when they invite Jesus over to their house? And Mary just pulls up like a beanbag at Jesus' feet while he teaches her. And Martha's just in the kitchen and she's just going for it, right? She's doing the full course meal. She's running around. You know, the stove's hot in there. She's all flushed. She's sweating. She realizes that Mary, like, is nowhere to be found. And she's the one preparing all the food. And at some point, Jesus goes, Martha, what the heck? I'm paraphrasing. But he basically goes, like, what are, like dude, what are you doing? And she's like, well, I'm preparing all this food, but Mary's just sitting at your, you know, at your feet. And he goes, yeah, that's because Mary chose the right portion. Those are the words he uses. He says, Mary has chosen the right thing because I'm here. So he doesn't say that Martha, that she should have stopped serving or that she shouldn't have served or that somehow serving is not the thing. No, 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 we have to serve. It was a good and right thing that Martha was preparing something for Jesus. But there was something stirring in her mind and there was something in her heart that made her serving all about herself. And in fact, Martha was forgetting exactly who she was serving. Can you imagine having Jesus sitting in your living room? I mean, I want to lay down a plate of cookies for sure. But I really want to hear what he has to say, right? But again, what we're talking about here is Martha 
serving from wrong motives. You know, it's interesting that things become small. Martha thought she was doing this big thing, putting on this big production. But in reality, things become small when they become all about us. So here's what happens as a server. Some of you guys have this tendency. You serve too much. So what does that then say about you? What puts you in that category like Martha where serving has become an idol of your life? Some of you don't serve at all. Or some of you just serve too little and you're serving another idol. In reality, both of those tendencies come back to the same thing because something is happening, or I should say not happening in your life, where you're not sitting at the feet of Jesus which then allows you to serve the needs of the church. So we want to get the order right. It matters that we get the order right. It doesn't just matter that we have a structure of serving. It matters that we have a posture of serving. Because when that happens, look what happens. I'm going to read verse 7 again back in uh, Acts. You want to turn back to Acts 6. Look what happens when they get this order in place. Acts 6, verse 7, it says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So because of the structure that these apostles put into place, calling uh, men and women to lead in these areas of care, and service and administration, it allowed them to continue doing the work of the gospel that they were called to. And so now physical needs are being met, but so are spiritual needs because the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. Not only that, but a great number of priests. So these were brothers that it was hard to convince. And now they're coming to know the truth of the gospel. So the impossible is even happening as the result. So what we're seeing here is that when the church says, hey, I'm going to step up, I'm going to serve so that the gospel remains unclouded and it remains without barriers of going out, what we have is unity. Unity is the thing that gets established because serving well shows that the gospel is weighing well on people's hearts. Does that make sense? When we serve well, it shows that the gospel is weighing well on us, right? And by the way, we should never elevate serving above the gospel. By the way, serving is not the gospel. And we got to remember that, right? We don't want to think serving somehow justifies us. Serving somehow earns our place. Serving is meant to flow from hands that are connected to a heart that has already been transformed by the gospel. Now here's what we know. The church always seems to be at a deficit when it comes to serving. I don't know why I'm the one laughing at that, right? There's never enough servers. So listen to what I'm about to say. A passage like this can be such an amazing occasion for the pastor to tell everyone to get out there and get it done and how we don't have enough servers and how, come on, come on, come on, right? I turn into a salesman up here, right? But it's so interesting that that is not how the Bible approaches these things at all. So you won't be getting that from me. The Bible provides structure, but it emphasizes the posture that needs to be at the heart of the structure. So let me say it to you like this. 
you can build a beautiful house. Maybe some of you have built beautiful houses, or maybe you've bought beautiful houses, or maybe you've bought something else that's beautiful. But it's not really a home, this beautiful house that you've bought or that you've fixed up, if the people who live in it treat it like a hotel, right? If the people who live in it, if they just show up, if they pillage the fridge, if they use the hot water, if they enjoy those comfortable beds, it may look like a house and a family, but in reality, it's more like a hotel with guests. And here's the thing. If I'm staying at a hotel, I don't expect to have to do anything, right? So when I'm staying at a hotel and I stay at some hotels during the year, like at no point does the front desk call me and say, hey, big guy, uh, just make sure you make your bed before you leave today. And make sure you pick up all your clothes off the floor and empty the trash. Well, that's not what staying at a hotel is about. It's about them providing those things for you. So here's what the call is for the church, for us. The call is not to merely serve others. Your call is to serve God by serving others. Get the order right. Get the order right. Because when you get the order wrong, you can serve from a sense of earning God's favor. You can serve from a sense of trying to ease some guilt that you have built into you that says God is happier with me when I'm serving. That's not the gospel. You can serve from this need and this desire to be affirmed. Man, I'm using my gifts. People see my talents. They say nice things about me. They praise me. You can serve, can serve from this need to get the pastor off your back. Right? Or you can just never serve at all. The problem with all of those things is that it ends in a place for you. It usually ends in a place of bitterness or entitlement or exhaustion or just, frankly, ambivalence. You just don't really care. By the way, the enemy, and we have an enemy, the Christian life is faced with an enemy. The enemy doesn't want a church that serves others. The happy place for our enemy is seeing a church that is in discord, that is merely only complaining, that comes through the doors and says, I wonder what can be done for me. I wonder what I can receive today. The enemy is super pumped to be establishing churches that are like that. The enemy doesn't want a church that serves other, a church that frees up its pastors to pray and to preach. It wants a church that consumes like the character of the world. Consumes. That's what it wants. That's what it wants. For some of you, maybe you've come here and you haven't been in church very long or you've come from a situation in a church where it's like, man, all this unity you're talking about when brothers and sisters are coming together and they're serving the needs of the church, man, I experienced the opposite of that. The whole thing just seemed like a sham. Everybody was there just to get what they wanted. The people that did serve were just doing it so that everybody would look at them and notice them. 
And here's the thing, man, nobody would doubt that testimony. Like, I'm not going to sit here and argue with you about that. This is what I am going to do. I'm going to invite you in to this messy, messy place called substance where we see people that, by God's grace, are serving him by serving one another and freeing me up so that I can get up here like the clown that I am and preach the gospel to you. Man, just come in. Come in with us. Come in with all the hypocritical nonsense that happens in church. It's not like you're going to come in here and not find some of that stuff, right? But you're going to find a place where we're going to call out that stuff. And we're going to try to be aware of that stuff. And we're going to try to repent of that stuff so that we can be a church that cares for one another's needs so that the gospel goes forward. And so that we continue to unify and strengthen the church. Look what Peter says in 1 Peter 4.10. This is what he says and we're done. As each has received a gift, use it, he says, to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. He said, whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So do you see what he's doing there again? He's saying, yeah, if you're a server, serve. So my encouragement to you is if you've been at this church, if you are a member of this church and you just kind of come in, check in, leave and check out, We want, we need you to serve because there is a strength and there is a unity that gets established in a church where everybody is caring for one another's needs so that the pastors can get about praying and preaching the word and devoting themselves to those things that need to be foundational and need to represent and characterize the posture of the structure that we are trying to create. So that's my encouragement to you this morning. To serve without grumbling, but with gladness, through love for others, like Jesus. In that, man, you will be serving the God who, by the way, supplies all of your needs. There is no threat to serving God by serving others. You're not going to be at a deficit if you give of your time and your talent and your treasure because God has and he will continue to supply all of your needs because in the end, the promise that we just sang, which was I shall not want, is the truth in the very heart of the gospel, which is that God sent Jesus so that our deepest needs and our deepest wants wouldn't be left uncared for. So in that, we are freed. Let's be those free people that serve one another so that the posture of our heart would be the gospel going out. You with me? Let's pray. God, thank you for serving us. Thank you that you sent your son who did not come to earth to be served but gave us a model of what it looks like to serve us in humility so that we might have peace with God. God, don't let this truth um, just go in one ear and out the other for us this morning, God. I thank you for 
that heart and the posture and the attitude of serving that we have at this church. I thank you, Lord, that you have blessed me, a man who does not deserve to be doing what he's doing, but is able to because of the men and women who faithfully serve. So God, I thank you for them. I praise you for them. And I pray that we would experience an increase of them in this church, Lord, so that living in a community who is weary and heavy laden, they would be able to see what it looks like for those who have glad hearts and who willingly give up everything they've been given for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of others. God, would you continue to cultivate that posture in us as we do our best to structure things in a way that honors you. God, help us today in those areas and help us to praise you as we uh, leave today for the work that you've just apparently done since that first Sunday with the one pump pot. It's almost hard to believe the grace that you've shown to a church such as we are. We pray that you would continue to do that by your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.